Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Queer Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Cornejo, a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California and co-owner of Psychosocial Therapy, a fully virtual practice where I specialize in working with the queer and BIPOC communities. I'm really, really excited that you're joining me today on this very special episode because I have a very special guest who I'm going to let introduce themselves right now. Hala hala, I am Claudina. Um, I am a doll content creator and makeup enthusiast of sorts. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you know, I know we're going to be talking about quite a few things, but I, I, I just, I have to say, I, I went through your content. Uh, you know, when your publicist reached out, and uh, I just absolutely love it. Uh, there's so much uh, around self-expression, and that's something that we do here. And you know, on this podcast is is really talking about the importance of self-expression. So uh, I was hoping that maybe we could start there uh, just a little bit about uh, how did Claudina come to be? I mean, how did you get into the makeup, all of this? For sure. So I started when I was 10 years old on YouTube doing doll reviews and stop motions. And long story short, when I turned 14, I came across RuPaul's Drag Race season six, and I had never realized that guys can do makeup on themselves. So mm. when I found that out, I decided to stop um, doing my nieces and friends makeup and horribly so might I add <laughs> and started practicing on myself. And um, I, I focused on doing drag transformations on YouTube and things really blew up when I did a video with my mom where it was uh, covering her birthmark and it was mm. the the power of makeup. And that went really viral and kind of catapulted the two of us as like this mother-daughter drag duo. And we went on to do panels at DragCon and work with a couple different makeup companies. Um, and that's that's kind of like the, the short form. And it all circled back because as of 2020, I decided to merge what I learned in the cosmetics industry and working in that side with what I love about dolls and fashion dolls and toys and created what I have today. That is amazing. So it sounds like it was a family affair and you were able to uh, get some support yeah. and also uh, encouragement from mom. That's wonderful. And, you know, I love what, what you just said right now about the power of makeup as someone that is a late bloomer queer and actually uh, started exploring what yeah. makeup about three years ago. I have definitely found it to be very magical and also very powerful. For sure. Um, I love yeah, that. And, and, you know, and I, I love seeing your content because I think for me, as someone that's newer to makeup, there's definitely been a lot of the hit and misses and trying to figure out like color right. skis, you know, techniques. Yeah, but eyeliner too long, like all, all those yeah. things. <laughs> and you definitely got it down because I, I saw, I mean, so many of your, your videos and images, I mean, they're beautiful. And I'm wondering how, how long did it actually take you before you felt good? I mean, are you still a work in progress? How, where, how would you describe it? Where are you at with makeup? Um, I think it took about seven years before I really felt confident in my ability to do makeup. I don't practice makeup on other people. I only do it on my mom or like friends if they really, really want me to and myself. But for a while, I was very insecure with what I, I did. I was like, oh, I'll never be able to recreate this look ever again if it was really good. And now I'm just like, you know, I kind of have the same staple face that I do. But it definitely took time. It took practice and consistency. And I was, I mean, there's, there's, video evidence on YouTube that it was just abysmal to begin with. It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> okay, got good. You know, you know, I face, face card never declines. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely can't tell now because yeah, I mean, you definitely you're an expert at it. But I, I'm wondering also, what what would you say was the hardest? Uh, the eyes, lips, and was there anything that you were kind of like working hard at? So I am half Chinese and I looked a lot um, more Chinese when I was younger. But mm-hmm. when I started doing makeup, it was kind of the rise of like Kylie Jenner and the Kardashians. And I remember feeling really insecure about my eyes because they're smaller, Um, They're a little bit more hooded. So I wasn't able to recreate the looks that society was kind of pushing as the beauty Mm -hmm. standard. And I felt really insecure about that. So for a while, I was doing eye looks that didn't match my eye shape. And so Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to really grow into um, really through representation of other other Asian creators, um, how to do eye shapes that matched my eye. Uh, And I would say eyes were probably the hardest for that reason. Okay. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, absolutely. With representation, right? And uh, for folks out there listening to who are either starting to explore with makeup or have been playing around with it for a while, uh, it definitely sounds then like it takes time. It takes a lot of experimenting yeah. and also finding what works for you, right? Sure. Absolutely. Okay, great, great. And, and so, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, Doc collecting because I do see you have quite an extensive collection uh, right behind you and, and uh, also on your page. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, I have been collecting dolls since I'm three. I got my first doll um, when I was, I want to say I was two when I had my first Ariel doll. It was a Little Mermaid. I was obsessed. And then I continued to collect Ariel dolls and Disney princesses. And I kind of fizzled out of that when I was seven. I was going to school and I remember starting to kind of feel the stigma around what boys should and shouldn't do. And so I got into Pokemon and Pokemon was, was fun. And I still love Pokemon, but for that reason, like I kind of fizzled out of dolls. And then I found monster high in 2010 because my brother actually saw the commercial on TV and I was just obsessed. I absolutely loved the message that monster high was sending even at 10, like I was a kid, Mm -hmm. but they were all about like being unique and being yourself in the back of their boxes. um, They're known for having a freaky flaw. So it was kind of like what made them different or quirky as a teenager navigating high school. And I really identified with that. And I decided Mm -hmm. like, oh, I really need to have every single one. So I kind of just have like a collector mentality around. Like I have Monster High Dolls I don't even like. I'm like, this is ugly boots, but (laughs) I will still buy it because I need to have every single one. Yeah, no, and it's a serious hobby, right? I mean, I definitely I'm sure it takes time and work and research and all of that to, uh, you know, be able to get your collection going like that. Oh, and I love sure. what you were sharing about about dolls too. Uh, we actually did an episode um, with a, another guest uh, last week where we were talking about self expression, and one of the things that came up was yeah. playing with dolls when we were younger, and how that was there was so much taboo and shame around it. Um, and right. so I was sharing with them that my earliest memory was putting like. Uh, cloth and like toilet paper on dolls and like creating these like extravagant <laughs> gowns and you know yeah. making them look all cute and shit and um, right. it, the reason the reason why I think that it's so important is because I, I do think that dolls um, they're very powerful right I mean uh, I, so many queer folks really connect and really align with, with dolls and so you know you were just sharing around your experience and really connecting with this specific uh, brand and and uh, you know, and, and uh, collection, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful, right? As a form of self-expression when we find things that yeah. really resonate with us and um, allow us to express our identity. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, I I always describe dolls as either creative vessels or mm. art sculptures, which and I think art inspires art. So now that I'm older, um, you know, I think there's there's even a taboo around that, like the whole like quote unquote kid adult thing and how that's really pioneering a lot of the toy industry right now, which it I mean, anybody who's into toys, it's like a it's like a whole niche. It's a whole thing. But um, there's a lot of stigma around um, the quote unquote, like healing your inner child through toys. And I think that there's a lot of people who do that. And it's a great way of um, being able to express yourself. Like you were saying, I think for me, since I've had dolls consistently through, through my life, I think there's ways that it heals my inner child, but it's not necessarily having the dolls that is, is healing and more so the sense of community that I'm able mm. to build with, with dolls whereas i think for some other people like they were never allowed to have dolls so now they're able yeah. to as an adult um yeah. and i think that in that way like dolls are a really good um they're they're unique form of decor is almost mm -hmm. how i describe them especially when you're an adult because they are somewhat uh functional like you can learn mm -hmm. a lot through dolls whether it's sewing if you're making outfits for your dolls or like you were describing like with toilet paper it kind of it kind of creates um different neural pathways to be creative and mm -hmm. invent things that ha and use your ingenuity but then you also can learn hairstyling and repainting and there's all these different ways that like dolls can be a canvas as opposed to like just a like a, something that sits there but dually like the way that i use dolls they all sit in box so they're all decor yeah. they're they serve more as like a visual art so i i tend to describe dolls more that way and i think even as a kid it's the same way like it's it's just really a vessel for creativity yeah, no, and that's beautiful. Uh, you know, the way you were just describing it, that, uh, you know, some folks definitely, it's a tool for healing inner child uh, wounds, right? Uh, like for myself, for example, I never got a chance to play with them. Uh, so now I actually buy, well, I buy a couple if, if I'm really, really like obsessed with them. Like okay. I, I bought this uh, Vera Wang doll just because I, yeah, really I have her. to ask, is it the one with, is it the one with the black outfit? And it's kind of it, like it, a, <laughs> yeah, oh, she's stunning though. We love her. We love Vera. I, I got her. I have her in a box. I put her away just because I want to, you know, I bring her out when I want to see her, feel inspired. I have yeah. a Frida Kahlo doll as well from the Barbie collection. Uh, you know how they release oh, okay. uh, special edition. <laughs> so, so I got my, my, yeah. Yeah, I got a, a mini, mini <laughs> little collection. But uh, for me, it's definitely been not just the, um, form of creativity but also like i said uh, that that healing right as someone that didn't get a chance to do that but really uh enjoys the beauty and the the art that goes behind doll creations uh you know and and, and i'm wondering for you do you, do you have a, a favorite doll or a doll that you cherish the most or that you, you know, just um, yeah, I, so if you're not familiar with Monster High, um, they're all the sons and daughters of the famous monsters. So we have like Frankie Stein, who is the child of Frankenstein, Dracula, who's the daughter of Dracula. Um, my favorite doll that I have that's like sacred to me is Twyla, who's daughter of the boogeyman. Um, her favorite subject is actually psychology. So I really identified hey. with that when I was, and she is, um, I have a, I have a prototype doll of her, which basically means it was like the one that Mattel used for all their Amazon stock photos, the one that they used to display at like Toy Fair. So she's hand painted. Okay. She's really pristine and like looks a little different than the actual release. So that doll's yeah. probably worth quite a bit more than any of my other dolls mm -hmm. and is 
undoubtedly like my favorite. I just really love her overall design. The designer behind her, or the designers, because I know there was a, there was two, are very very talented. Rebecca Shipman and and the other one's Natalie. Okay, wow. And, and do you have her uh, on display in your room as well, or is you kept safe somewhere specific? No, she she is, she is out here on display. I'm actually I ordered um some pedestals, which is going to be at the end of the third part of the documentary, which I guess is like a little bit of a spoiler, but I ordered some pedestals and I'm displaying uh, the out of box dolls on those pedestals in like a glass casing. Cause I really want it to look like a museum. That's like a goal of mine is to eventually open up a museum and be able to let people see the the dolls probably a limited yeah. for a limited. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that you're, you know, you're, you definitely have a, a doll that speaks to you. And I mean, that sounds very special, right? To have a doll that's uh, yeah. a little bit different than the whole uh, rest of the line, uh, but also that you, know, you can share with people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's like, it's really, really crazy to have, to have that. Cause it's like one of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And you mentioned uh, your documentary and I know you just released part three and I was actually watching it. Like I was sharing with you earlier um, today and I haven't yes. gotten to finish it but i'm definitely gonna go back i got i got sucked in i was just watching you do your thing and i and I, I love it and um your publicist they described it as a story about grief disguised by the glamour and aesthetics of escapism and i'm curious uh what they meant by that and if you can give me a little bit more details uh maybe we can start with the third part since that's the newer part and, and we can kind of go back a little bit to the yeah. first and second parts so um, I, I did write that blurb for them. They asked me how I would describe it. And that's that's how I would describe it is that you're really it's the, the documentary is titled Completing My Monster High Collection, because that's what it what draws in my viewers. You know, they're all Monster High fans or doll fans, but it's truly a story about um, how I, I talk a bit about in the second part, like my breakup with my ex and how that was pretty traumatic and the passing of my father so my dad passed away in 2021 and the entire documentary takes place in 2022 but after his passing and how I um, am moving through grief and working towards this goal of like achieving this dream of like having every single doll because there's 800 dolls for again people who might be familiar there's 800 monster high dolls and I want them all in box um, yeah. and I was at the beginning of it missing only a hundred of them. But those hundred dolls was, there was, I believe I quoted in the first part that that would cost me $7,000 to get the rest of wow. what I was missing. So what you're really watching is like, how do I work towards earning enough to afford these dolls um, while simultaneously navigating the uh, the breakup and mm -hmm. my dad's past, like the, the family aspect of, of grief. Yeah because I'm also a public figure. So in the second part, um, I show going to different events. Like I've gone to movie premieres, I'm working with Mattel. Um, I'm meeting with all these companies and achieving goals and dreams. But how do you work through that when you're also going through yeah. so much uh, emotionally? Mm -hmm. And grief, I mean, it's an experience, right? It's a, it's so many different emotions and I'm sure it was different every day. And uh, I mean, it sounds like you were really busy, but also still, emotionally i'm sure exhausted oh for sure she is tired she's ready to rest mm -hmm. um you know i think a lot about the uh i love love wanda the scarlet witch so i loved wandavision mm -hmm. and the quote that she has about grief i mean i know that um there's like that iconic quote that uh 
grief is, um, what is grief if not love persevering? But I really identified with her, Wanda's quote, where she says like, it feels like a wave washing over me again and again. And I think to finish the quote, it's like, I, every time I stand up, it just comes for me again. And one day it's going to drown me. And that's when he yeah. makes his quote or vision makes the quote. But I think that people who experience grief, that's how it, it's perfectly described because grief comes in waves. Um, mm -hmm. and it is experienced differently by everyone. I think everyone has different um, levels of tolerance. Uh, I think that people have different emotions around what that means or the person or thing that they are grieving. Um, and I, I, talk a lot about this too in the documentary, but how grief expands past just death. Like you grieve the loss of a dream. Like if you can't achieve a goal anymore, you grieve um, things that might you may have experienced. You grieve breakups. Mm -hmm. It's it's not exclusive to death, but I think that death is a unique um, form of grief mm -hmm. because of, I guess, just the nature of, of life and death. Yeah, I know. And that's beautifully said. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're going to grieve different versions of loss, right? Like uh, you just mentioned. Uh, and I don't think many people actually know that, right? Or, or uh, are aware that we do go through a process, even with things like breakups, right? Where there is a whole, I mean, we can go through right. psychology, right? And talk about stages of grief. We can talk about all this stuff. But I mean, sure. the real experience is it can be very intense. And, you know, you described it so beautifully with that quote, um, uh, from Scarlet Witch right around waves. Um, and, you know, I've heard it described in so many different forms. And uh, I remember right. someone once said that it felt like being lost at sea and having no direction and not knowing, you know, yeah. where they were headed. And it was scary, you know, and, and, and like you said, everyone's going to experience it in different ways. Everyone's going to respond and react in different ways. Uh, and I'm curious for you, you know, how, how did you or, or if, you know, if you're open to sharing uh, during that time, you mentioned you were really busy, but you were also holding, um, you know, that space for grief. Um, what was that like for you? I mean, going to these events, collecting, you know, the dolls and still, you know, grieving. So... Um, it was, it was, I think because of the breakup, it mm -hmm. was incredibly overwhelming to my nervous system. Like I did not know how to respond, um, to most, most conflicts. I think that it had an extreme effect on my self-esteem and ability to like navigate friendships and relationships. I think that it really um, broke a lot of rapport I had with friendships. And on the other side of that, I think now where I'm at, like I, I would describe myself differently, but during that time, it was really, um, there, there was no answer. I think, especially when you're going through a relationship that you really want to work out that just simply isn't, or it's not a fit, or there is, um, any form of, uh, any I guess a lack of communication. I think that it can, it can really, um, sorry, I keep getting a call. So I'm just trying to <laughs> no worries. silence that. <laughs> any, any form of, uh, conflict amidst also trying to grieve. I think when you're grieving, like there's, there's, um, an emphasis on needing to still feel connected to others and, and feel mm -hmm. supported by others. I think that's just human nature. So to experience a breakup at the same time simultaneously while navigating work was just very depressing. It was really, really depressing. Yeah. I think it led to a lot of um, different forms of coping, some of them being extremely unhealthy, 
some of them being a little bit a little bit better like obviously I, I ended up completing the the collection at the end of the the part which is not a secret it's in the title but um I think that that was like a, a higher point it was a healthier way of coping and like a, a testament to my dedication and passion and then there were parts where like I really struggled with different substances I definitely struggled with how I was communicating with the with friends and family um so it was it was hard. It was and I'm I'm sometimes shocked that I was able to navigate the work stuff because when you're in the public eye like it's definitely um I don't think it's necessarily relatable for people. So I can't say that this will necessarily be something that people identify with, but when you're in the public eye, I think it's 10 times more heightened because people are watching you unfold so you kind of have to perform constantly to make sure that people um you know, you know it's not everybody's business i don't feel like everybody needs to know at all times i think that some some things can stay sacred but you know if i'm doing a live stream and like i just get hit by like feeling, feeling triggered or activated or you know grief hits it's hard to guise those things and i don't think they necessarily should be i think that we should make space for grief and the reality of life in america is like there's just not always space for that or time for that especially yeah. when you're working yeah no absolutely and you bring up a really valid point you know and uh being a public figure something that i i've noticed is that um you talk a lot about mental health, right? And you're sharing a lot of very vulnerable things. And that was not something when I was, at least when I was growing up, that we saw a lot from celebrities, right? Or from folks, there was a lot of stigma and shame around sharing very personal things. Uh, even things that, I mean, we can, the general public, right? Most of us can relate to like loss, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, so many other things. And I'm wondering how important is it to you uh, to talk about mental health with you know your followers and supporters and community, um, and and how do you keep boundaries and limits around that? Um, I think for me, it's I'm learning how to navigate that because I always have. I think from a very young age, I I don't describe myself as a star. Like I don't think I'm big enough of a of a quote unquote like figure to label myself a celebrity by any means. Mm -hmm. But I do think that I've kind of have like this sense of child stardom where I've always been in the public. So like there's a video of me crying because somebody um, from, it was one of my parents' friends from church. They identified as gay, but they identified as like an ex-gay that they had been like okay. saved by God. And I had a like really bad emotional break from that. And I ended up doing like a YouTube video, like crying about it. And like, I was incredibly like emotionally turbulent and um I look back at that and like, I kind of wish that wasn't shared just for the sake of like, you know, 16 year old me not necessarily needing to constantly be, be put out there that way. But um, I still think that because I've created a platform where people look up to me and want um, and are kind of looking for, for a sense of community and comfort, I think it's important for me and I have the resilience to put out certain things. I think my boundaries are really like, I'm, I'm very aware of, my nervous system now I'm very aware of like what intuitively feels right or wrong so I will have boundaries around what I share um, whether it's doing a podcast or on a YouTube video um, because not I, I have had to learn that not everything is safe to share with the internet like not everything has to be said 
And I don't always believe that it's like the responsibility of public figures to be completely vulnerable, but I have created a platform where I want to be. And I think that there's other people who want to be. And if that's what people are looking for, I think they'll, they'll gravitate towards it. But my boundaries are really just like, you know, if people ask, I think people are welcome to ask and I'm welcome to say like, yes or no. And I'm always happy to like direct people and be very kind about that. Yeah, I know that I think that's extremely important, right? Not just uh, uh, in terms of our own mental health, but also in really creating uh, dialogue, right, around mental health, that it doesn't mean we have to share every single detail, right? But we can talk about these topics. And uh, obviously, there are, you know, mental health professionals out there, hotlines and things like that for folks who do need uh, that additional support. But I think it's still important that you are including this and creating space, right, for folks to know that this is real, right? People do experience Uh, these things. To elaborate on that, I was actually talking with my own therapist about this like two sessions ago about ways of communicating and expressing um, vulnerable things without necessarily having to share the specifics. So something that I struggle with is like, I don't want to be invalidated. I have a lot of trauma around not being believed or understood or validated. So um, it's not always safe for me to just give all the, the nitty gritty details out of fear of like, people being like, oh, I don't believe that. So instead we found a way of just um, of w- phrasing and wording things that might still hit the same feeling without necessarily having to share every little little detail. And I think that's been helpful. And hopefully, you know, people hearing can feel the same way. I mean, sometimes it's like, an, it, it almost feels like an itch you have to scratch. Like you just have to get out every single detail or like you won't be heard or understood or believed. Um, and I think that there's various ways of, of coping that can can help navigate that if it's because it's if it's not always safe to share every little detail but um Mm -hmm. yeah i just found that that to be interesting yeah i know absolutely and and tell me for you and your experience um what has been i guess maybe one of the biggest challenges or or things you've come across in really creating this platform and and building a community uh because you mentioned like having to to do a lot right and and constantly being on and i mean it it sounds like it's a lot of work yeah um i think i have a rather controversial take but i Mm. would say one of the biggest challenges i have in having a platform and being a queer person is the way that um that was a loud knock. <laughs> One sec, sorry. Just a delivery. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll start over. <laughs> um, so I think one of the, the biggest challenges that I've faced is um, the... I would say kind of like the mo- the mob mentality of the internet sometimes or like the hive mind and like misinformation that can be spread, especially mm-hmm. for marginalized people. Because most of the time, marginalized people, queer people rely on our groups, our communities for support because we're often outcasted by other parts of society. So yeah. when you are exiled or like pushed to be exiled out of those spaces, where do you have to turn? Um, and mm-hmm. I really, really love, um, she's a media psychologist. Her name is Dr. Christine Marie. She did a dissertation on <clears throat> media misrepresentation and humiliation based on her mm-hmm. experience because she was, I can't, I don't remember her specific scenario, but I remember her 
discussing in her dissertation some of the other scenarios of like people who were on like American Idol or reality TV okay. who were misrepresented um, or like, you know, only one side was showed of them. And then that's what mm-hmm. the internet took and ran with. And they are now seen as like this quote unquote, like crazy, unstable person. When in reality, yeah. they're a whole human being that <laughs> their full experience wasn't being showed because, you know, it's TV. So, um, and she was just discussing how, oftentimes people who are misrepresented and the people that she was working with, the symptoms they were describing developed as PTSD and people who Mm -hmm. experience misrepresentation experience symptoms of PTSD. So I think that that is detrimental to um, the communities of marginalized people because we rely on one another and how dangerous it is if Mm -hmm. it's for the people who already feel outcasted, who need these safe spaces and need the support. And I think when you create a platform, there is like a hundred times more the chance that you are going to be misrepresented in some way that people are going to feel some type of way about you. I mean, everyone has their opinions. It's inevitable to be criticized in some way, but um, I think that a lot of people who create platforms are seen as like billionaires or even millionaires or even hundred thousand nairs, but <laughs> aren't necessarily followers. And I have so many friends of my own, um, primarily pri- I'm friends with primarily people in the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, they're not, they're not well off enough where if they don't have social media like that, they have anywhere else to turn. And if they yeah. don't have a good representation or good reputation, like they can't, just get a job and they don't have families where it's safe to rely mm-hmm. on family. So I think in that way, um, I just hope that people can be more empathetic and understanding of, mm-hmm. of one another. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely something that uh, many folks probably see as a challenge, right? When they're in the public eye or, or when they're building platforms, uh, you brought up two really great things that I, maybe we can touch on really quickly. You were mentioning this, this, uh, dissertation writer or the psychologist that was uh, talking about, uh, you know, the way that folks are perceived and, and kind of how people uh, really make a lot of these assumptions, right, based on what's being presented by media. Um, and I mean, we see that even now, right, with a lot of the politicized uh, stuff, well, the political stuff that's coming up around trans and um, drag queens, right, That that's often right. misinterpreted or shown in a very specific way, right, a lot of misinformation and a lot of people not yeah. really knowing enough to be able to uh, really um, get the full context. And I was actually seeing something on Instagram and TikTok the other day where they were talking about a marathon runner and how they got a medal and they were trans and they were like, people were upset because they had run in a women's race and all of this other shit. And basically what came to light was that they had gotten a participation medal and they were being forced to give it back because they felt like, oh, you know, this person. And so they pretty much villainized them without actually having a lot of information. And this was like on the news. And we see this stuff, I mean, in other other areas, right? I mean, when we talk about drag performers as well and how that's being presented. And I mean, there's so much out there. And I I find it really funny whenever they actually... um, confront a lot of these politicians and people about these things because they they generally usually don't really have a, a defense for it. It's more of just their own, you know, bias or, or hate or really uh, ignorance towards the communities. Um, yeah. And, and what are your thoughts around that? When I mean, in terms of like uh, seeing some of these things that are, are going on in our country, I mean, do you have any thoughts or anything you know, to share about it? 
Yeah, I think a couple things. So first of all, like media literacy, people like media literacy. I think that there is so much misinformation that's spread because of a lack of context. And context mm -hmm. is very, very important when we're discussing these important topics. Um, you know, I grew up in a conservative town with my, my dad was a pastor. Both my parents were ordained ministers. Mm -hmm. So I was around a lot of those types of people where like, it is still it is still jarring to me like because i i just can't comprehend or wrap my head around a lot of the ignorance or like mm. the logical fallacies that are used though and this is i guess in no way like sympathetic towards them and i don't necessarily feel like there's it's necessary to change people's minds in order for change to happen right like i i think of people like like trump or i even think of um like phyllis schlafly where you know there's a lot going on there but like people who are conservative who have ideologies that are harmful um and i would say like dangerous and unsafe personally mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the change still happens like the change still happens and they still believe what they believe <laughs> so i don't think that they necessarily <laughs> need to be changed in order for the change to happen though i will say i am always curious like why like, where is that coming from? And I think a lot of people actually suffer from religious trauma. And like, it is mm -hmm. so scary to imagine um, believing otherwise, because it feels like your life is at risk. And like, mm -hmm. if you die, like, there is this huge fear of like this eternal suffering that may happen if you even swing the pendulum a little bit to um, be a little bit more accepting. And of course, like the, the verbiage would be used differently. Like they wouldn't see that as accepting. They would see that as like, I think I think it's a lot of brainwashing to be honest, that's going on. Yeah. Where like, if I, I just know the people that I grew up around from church, if I was to say like, I don't feel accepted in their mind, it's almost like this is Satan like trying to manipulate me. They mm -hmm. are in constant, I believe truly that they are in constant states of like fight or flight where there's constant hypervigilance around who is manipulating me, who is evil. Um, it's a lot of black and white thinking. And mm -hmm. I don't even know, like, sometimes I joke, because that's how I like deal with my own mm -hmm. grief and trauma is I joke a lot about things that can sometimes come off indelicate. But I'm like, you know what props to whoever mm -hmm. was genius enough to be able to manap manipulate these mass mm -hmm. groups of people It's like, wow, you really did that. Someone give them their flowers because it's and it's it's scary. I think that it is scary, and I hope that there can be more healing and unity and community because it's necessary. Um, and I do find that even the people from the churches I grew up around who were super bigoted and ignorant, like they they could still be very lovely people. And it's so unfortunate that like they are yes. completely blinded. No, you're absolutely right. And you know, I agree. I, I agree with you. I agree with what you're saying. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about religion and religious trauma, uh, you know, I've shared often on the podcast how I was also raised in a very religious conservative home. And what we were taught was really rooted pretty much in fear, right? And it shaped the level of anxiety that many folks in, in, in not just my family, but in, uh, in the church community that uh, I was a part of really experienced, right? This fear of the unknown, right? Of, you know, we talk about homosexuality, talked about queerness, they talked about trans folks. And it was really this like right. um, lack of understanding or knowledge and really more fear about not really understanding um, or even, um, you know, having examples, right? Of, of the community. And so, um, something that you were saying 
around specifically, um, you know, the fight or flight is that 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 tends to be how many people respond, right? When they when they uh, come face to face with things that are not in the binary, that are not things that they were taught, that are not things that are, you know, within the black and white kind of perspective that religious religion teaches, there is a, a you know, a strong reaction Um and so I find that very powerful what you were just uh, saying, and, and I definitely agree. And I think, uh, you know, oftentimes this is used as a tool, right, to really e- exacerbate that fear, uh, especially politically, right, when people start to bring up, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of these things. And, and and the bottom line is that these things are are dangerous, right? This rhetoric does affect communities. It does incite violence. It does create a narrative that uh, is one-sided. And so I think it's so important that, you know, we talk about that openly as well. Um, You know, and and the other uh, thing you were mentioning around, oh my gosh, and I just had it in my head and it like just whoop, like fell off, but you were... (laughs) mentioning oh yes about progress i love the way you described it because you're absolutely right this is the thing that progress is still happening regardless and i think that even the larger pushback and a lot of what's happening now is just the response to the fact that it's actually happening right there's a there's a fear right that people the way people see the world is shifting it's changing and especially for a lot of conservative folks uh you know, they're, they're seeing the changes. And I think that it does bring up fear. And, and that's usually the narrative, right, that's used, uh, um, you know, tapping into people's um, fear about these things. So thank you for mentioning that and for sharing your, you know, your opinion. Uh, and, and I know we're, we're running a little bit out of time, but I did just want to go back to something you mentioned earlier around community. And, uh, you know, I, I did want to talk to you about the doc community. I saw in your documentary, and that's kind of where I started to, to um uh, get get a little bit sucked in. You were mentioning how the, yeah. I think you said, I don't know if you said there are a lot of trolls sometimes in the community. You were kind of just mentioning how it can be a little oh, bit yeah. rough sometimes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit it's about that. Drama. It is drama. You know, if you if you can imagine like playing Barbies as a kid, like that is what the doll community is. Like they they are <laughs> Barbies. You know, there's all types of scandal <laughs> and drama, and like you know, and and at the end of the day, I think that it's still um, there can be a lot of comfort and safety in the community but i think that you do have to learn to navigate your boundaries i i think that that's really important i think a lot of people are turning not everyone so i do want to clarify nothing i say is ever like a blanket statement i just don't believe in things being black and white that way Mm -hmm. but i think that it's often a community of people turning to for escapism um and for a hobby that is still fairly niche and can feel unsafe to express elsewhere. And and mm-hmm. thus, um, I think that there is there are people who are a lot more mature and like understanding and able to bring comfort and like solace to people in the community. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's ultimately like what I would like to focus on in the doll community is how creative yeah. and brilliant it is. I think that m- like most um like most marginalized groups, like there's a lot that the doll community does that is just revolutionary and pioneers a lot yes. of pop culture and media. Like I look at the Bratz challenge, people dressing like Bratz dolls now. Like there's there's mm-hmm. so there's a lot of influence by doll photographers that aren't always um, represented or seen that aren't actually by the actual corporations, but in fact just members of the community who might only have a hundred followers or a thousand followers. Yeah. Um, and in that way, like I think the the community is really, really brilliant and really, really smart. And I think that there's 
now becoming more representation of those people in in media. Like mm-hmm. I think of Sugar and Spikes on Drag Race. I remember them from when I was God, like 11 on Flickr, and they've always been so polished with their doll photography. Um, or like Trixie Mattel, I know that she collects Barbies. So I think there's there's various people coming out of the woodworks who who are doll collectors that um, represent like that this community is really full and colorful and creative. Yeah. Definitely, definitely a lot of magic out there. And I'm so glad to hear that, you know, you're seeing that in the community and and a lot of people coming out and really sharing uh, and really engaging in this form of joy, right? And and, and just excitement. Um, You know, and I I do want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wanted to ask if you can share with us, how can people find you? Uh, You know, where can they watch the documentary? Uh, I am going to be putting this in the description as well. So, you know, uh, they'll be able to see it there. But just I want to hear it directly from you. Tell me a a little bit more about how you connect with people or how you like to so my youtube is at claudina nines that's c-l-a-w-d-e-e-n-a nine like the nails and then my instagram is mama dina official claudina was taken so (laughs) you can find me at mama dina m-a-m-a-d-e-e-n-a official and tiktok is just claudina c-l-a-w without the nine Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I'm sure, uh, you know, we'll be able to uh, see a lot more from you in the future. And I'm so excited to finish the third part of the documentary and actually going back. I think I'm going to, I'm actually going to be going backwards, but uh, you know, you shared a lot around context around uh, the first part and the second part. Uh, So I'm excited to to watch. And, uh, you know, once again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time uh, and you sharing your passion and and really your story with us. Uh, And hopefully we can have you back for another episode talking. I mean, you yeah. brought us so many good points. I'm sure we could be talking for it for oh. a couple hours. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me on. This was so much fun. Of course, of course. Thank you, everyone who listened in. Uh, and I'm going to be posting all the info in the description. So make sure you check out the documentary. Make sure you follow Claudina. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.